Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, have you ever felt slip fast or a longing to melt into a crowd and become invisible? Or maybe scabulous, proud of a certain scar on your body? John Koenig finds the gaps that exist in the language of emotion and tries to fill them. He's put those words into a book more than 10 years in the making titled The Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. We'll learn a few more from his compendium and why he thinks vast holes in our emotional lexicon exist. Join us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Heartspur. It means the unexpected surge of emotion in response to a seemingly innocuous trigger. And it's one of the many words John Koenig has created for emotions we've felt but lacked words to describe. Developing a richer language for our emotional or interior lives has been a more than decade-long project of Koenig's, which began as a blog and now has become a book, The Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. This hour, we'll learn more about the complex emotions he's distilled into a single word, and we want to hear from you what's an emotion you've always wanted to name. John Koenig, welcome to Forum. Thank you. Um, it's it's great to be here. It's great to have you. And the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, it's been a project 12 or so years in the making. How has it felt to have it published? Do you have uh, a word for that? <laughs> I, I do, actually. Um, there's a word called Zielschmerz, which is the uh, the dread of finally pursuing a lifelong dream. Um, and so for me, it's it's a, been a little like uh, publishing your own diary. Uh, so it's, you know, this is a very intimate book uh, with all my sort of deep, dark fears uh, just poured into this, uh, into this vessel that I did while I was mostly just isolated and alone. Um, and now it's, you know, it's out there in the world. And that's, um, it's, it's a terrifying thing, really. But it's, it's gratifying, though, to know that I'm not alone in how I feel. And I think that's really, if there's one thing to take away from the book is, is that you are never alone uh, in feeling how you're feeling. Interesting. One of the words that I thought might uh, might relate to what you're feeling is edarath, if I'm saying that correctly. The feeling right, of right. emptiness after a long and arduous process is 
finally complete, like having finished school, recovered yep. from surgery, as I'm reading from your dictionary, or gone home at the end of your wedding. <laughs> Just, yeah, exactly. Did, did, did that come up for you as well? Or Absolutely. Um, yeah, relieved that it's over, but missing the stress that organized your life into a mission. There's, I, I miss the the dread as well. So it's it's both sides of that. Is, uh, yeah, it's 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 quite a trip. Yeah, so so complex and so interesting the things that that you put your finger on. When did you start to notice that our language, while really full of detailed and specific words to describe what you say as our exterior world, is not as rich in words to describe our interior worlds? Yeah, I think it has something to do with the I, I grew up in, in Geneva, Switzerland, surrounded by hundred odd uh, nationalities around me um, at an international school. And so um, there's so many different languages going on, on around me and so many different ways to look at the world. And I became just acutely aware of that uh, quite early on. And, um, you know, you start learning some of these words in other languages like uh, duende or, you know, schadenfreude in German that um, you, you realize just how rich the, the language could be. Um, and, uh, you know, English for all it's, uh, you know, it's, it's basically a giant sponge that just absorbs words from other languages. And I think linguists think that English has the, the broadest vocabulary of, of any language out there, but for all that, we, our, our, our language of emotion is, is depleted if anything. And, uh, and we really need that richness. And so that's, you know, I, knowing all these other words for different things, you know, in Japanese, there's mono no aware, which is the awareness of the transience of all things. Um, that, that's a beautiful thing that I think we need a word for. And so seeing how other languages have, have added to the, you know, the, the perspectives that, uh, that we use with our words, I think I, I decided to just try to, you know, come up with my own and add to the language in ways that I, I thought was needed. Why do you think we lack words for our interior worlds? You describe the interior world as uncharted territory still. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's it's just a, a consequence of uh, how words are are coined in in everyday life. I mean, it's we have a word for mammoth, an animal that doesn't even exist. Um, but we don't have a word for the desire to disappear. And I think there's good practical reasons why that should be. Um, but it but it also means that um, we need to, to be more intentional and active as opposed to passive about the, the language that you we use, because in the end, the language that we, you know, we, we speak to each other in, in, in conversations, that's how we build our lives. Uh, it's, it's extremely important. Um, uh, so, you know, I, th I think that's, uh, that's why I've tried to, to do what I do is to, to get beyond the, the, the practical framework that, you know, we have words, thousands of words for different types of finches and schooners and historical undergarments, but not for just the <laughs> basic, you know, the exquisite subtleties of, of being human. How we build our lives, you mean that that they shape our realities? Um, that's a, it's a controversial, uh, <laughs> linguistic, yeah, it's, it's called linguistic determinism is, is the idea that the words, you know, determine how you think. Um, I'm, you know, as skeptical as, as the next person about that. All I know, um, from my little corner of the world is that, um, when you know a word for something, um, it has a sense of, it validates what you're feeling, especially a word for an emotion. And so uh, once you learn that, that such a thing exists, it, it 
switches a little switch in your brain and it makes you think about it differently. You're able to, to reach for, for that emotion much more quickly and, and, you know, basically installs a handle on that emotion that is otherwise, you know, inchoate and, and, and difficult to convey to other people. But suddenly you have a handle that you can hand off to someone else that is extremely powerful. Well, we invited our, our listeners ahead of the show to share words that, that they wish existed or words that they may have made up themselves. Here are a few that a couple of listeners have mentioned are words they wish existed. This listener writes, I need a word for the feeling of loving to read, but having too many books, magazines, mm -hmm. and other materials that I want to read. Maybe Biblio Drownia, <laughs> drowned in books. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have a, actually a similar word there um, in the book. It's called velicor. Uh, it's from vellum, which means parchment, and ichor, which is the fluid that flows in the veins of the gods in ancient Greek mythology. Um, so velicor means the strange wistfulness of used bookstores, um, which are filled with thousands of old books that you'll never have the time to read. Um, which, I mean, I, I love old, old bookstores more than anything, um, but it, they also make me sad. I, I have to confront my mortality in the stacks every time. This other listener has the joyful encouragement you feel when watching a small or baby animal overcome an obstacle. And yeah. another, the satisfaction felt when straightening something crooked, like a picture frame, a necktie, or items on a shelf. That's great. I love <laughs> yeah. that. I, I wanted to ask you about the title of your book, The Dictionary mm -hmm. of Obscure Sorrows. Why the word sorrows? which conjures sort of deep sadness um, as opposed to say something more general like obscure feelings or, or even joys because there are a lot of joys that you describe i think if anything um well first of all the origin of the book is that the, the words the dictionary of obscure sorrows appeared in my head one day <laughs> and so huh. it just arrived like that and so i tried to figure out what these five words meant um, and so it, the, the title really led the book and, and the, the book itself is, is an attempt to, to live up to the promise that I felt when I first thought up the title. Um, I think it, it speaks to something true, which is that life is, is really complicated and confusing and tough. Um, just, you know, if you have the best life of all, of, of anybody, uh, you know, just, just being human is quite the ordeal. And so I think that the, the word sorrows mm -hmm. uh, really speaks to that in a very sort of existential way. Uh, and the other thing I'd say about it is that um, our understanding of sadness is a little bit backward, in my view. Um, the original uh, etymology of the word sadness was fullness. Uh, originally. So it, it wasn't about trying to, you know, divide feelings into, you know, this is a good feeling, and this is a bad feeling, we have to deny all the bad ones. I'm much more of a, a yin yang, where we, we take joy and grief all at once, and they're independent, and, and we desperately need both of them. Uh, and so, you know, there's a ton of joy in this book, actually. Right. Um, but, um, but sorrows, I think, is, is sort of the, the baseline. Just briefly, can you talk about how the dictionary is organized? Because it's not alphabetical, right? Like a dictionary right. um, that we traditionally think about. Um, they're grouped loosely by themes. And, and I'm curious about how you came up with some of these overarching categories and if you could name a couple of them. Yeah. Um, 
so here I, I actually I let uh, let the content uh, lead the way as well. I, I you know gathered the first three or four hundred of them and sorted them by theme and tried to figure out what they were trying to tell me. And these these six are the the, the themes that came to the the forefront. Uh, and they are between living and dreaming. That's basically about worldview and desire and fantasy. Um, the interior wilderness. That's about you know introspection. Montage of attractions, that's about uh, intimacy and relationships. Uh, faces in a crowd is about alienation and society. Boats against the current, that's about the passage of time. And finally, roll the bones, which is about um, hmm. chaos and uncertainty. And that, that one in particular uh, strikes me very deeply. Especially with the things that have been happening in the past two oh, years or so. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, all, uh, it's all uncertainty these days. It did feel like there were some pandemic related words so i wonder if you came up with them before pandemic and please correct me if i'm pronouncing some of these wrong sure there's <laughs> but, no wrong way to say these they but like know. canopsia for example the eerie, eerie echoey feeling of a busy place such as a shopping mall or downtown boulevard that it's suddenly emptied of people boy yeah that one really came to life once the pandemic hit didn't it yeah entire <laughs> cities just hollowed out and abandoned. No, that one actually predates uh, the pandemic by a good uh, three years, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely came to the fore uh, lately. You also explained that the, the definitions are arranged in no particular order, which is true to life, given the way that emotions tend to drift through your mind, you say, like the weather. Did you want to say a little more about that in terms of the yeah, weather metaphor? Um, yeah, I think... Um, yeah. If, if we, we tell stories and they have nice clean arcs and that's very satisfying, but, um, you know, day to day, um, on the, on your worst day, there are, there are great things that happen and unexpected, you know, like you were sobbing at a, a bus station, but it was really beautiful out and the birds were chirping. Like this happens all the time in our day-to-day -day lives, but in movies, everything lines up very cleanly and neatly and everything has an order um, because everything's sort of strung together into a story. And so I, you know, trying to resist that, um, you know, I, I decided to just have things, you know, coexist, the joy and the grief um, just sort of spilling into each other. And we're talking about, beautiful about that. Yeah, something very beautiful. We're talking about the language of emotion with John Caney, creator of the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with the emotions that you wish had a name or, or if you've ever coined a word for an emotion. And we'll hear from you after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about the language of emotion and the gaps that exist in our language to describe complex emotions and how to fill them, which is what John Koenig has been doing for more than a decade. Creator of the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. It was a blog, a web series, and now it's a book. And you, our listeners, are invited to join us. You can call 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. And tell us what's an emotion you wish had a name maybe there's a word for an emotion in another language that has no English translation that you'd like to share. You can also share them on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. And uh, actually, we have a caller on the line already. Let me go to Don in San Jose. Hi, Don. Yes, hello. Go right ahead, yeah. um, Yes. So schadenfreude is a good example of that word, which we don't have a good word for in English. But um, I wanted to get uh, your um, um, uh, person's, uh, uh, I want want to get their thoughts on this, that when you speak a language, you uh, express what you're thinking in that language and you reach into the uh, memory and you pull out you know, specific words to explain your thoughts. If you speak to somebody else in another language, you could be trying to explain that same idea in that other language. Uh, when you when you switch from one language to the other, you don't translate, you just speak. And so my question is, what is the nature of that cognition before you switch into that other language, which may or may not have specific words to explain what you're saying. Wow, John. John Koenig. <laughs> you wanna you wanna go for it? Thanks for, for such an interesting thought. It is Don, a I have fascinating not. question. Yeah. It is. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not a linguist. So I'll I'll point that out right now. I'm just a I'm just a guy feeling things in his own little corner. But I will say that it it speaks to something um, very uh, true, which is that um, a lot of what um, governs our communication is is speed, and just you know how how easy it is to to you know cut to the chase and and reach for the the words that allow us to express ourselves. And and um, not to say we're a lazy species, but uh, you know if you have a word right there that's you know Schadenfreude, it, you're gonna you're gonna be able to to express it um, a little bit faster. And I think that's just things are just naturally gonna lean that way. Um, and so there's, I think that's what causes a lot of the blind spots that we have, um, that, uh, you know, erupt from our experiences of who we are when we're alone, for example, um, that's kind of an, an unknown world to a lot of people. And so that's, that's what I've tried to, the gaps that I've tried to fill with this book. You have used a lot of non-English words as the source or basis of inspiration for the words that you create. Do you, in doing that, find that other languages have a better emotional lexicon than English? Um, I I think so. I, I'm often very envious um, that some of these these languages have uh, words for things like uh, duende is a, a kind of you know, in Spanish, it's a, a state of passion um, inspired by an artistic endeavor or, you know, flamenco, uh, something like that. Um, and I, I wish we had a word like that in English that we could refer to all the time. Um, but, you know, thinking of other languages that you don't speak, it's it's really hard to get a sense of, of how, how deep that pool goes without knowing the whole thing. So, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm happy to sample from, I think there's like a hundred different languages in this book. And so I'm, I'm just happy to be, uh, you know, uh, 
just enjoy the buffet without getting too <laughs> deep into any one language. Right. I'm also struck by what you just said about the feelings in that moment of aloneness. I'm thinking mm -hmm. of one of the words from your dictionary, Ozuri being torn between the life you want and the life you have. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Ajuri. Um, Ajuri. Okay, the, the, <laughs> I don't. The, uh, I didn't not, copy all the pronouncers, no, so no, I'm no, trying no. to that's, remember these. That's fine. It's. It, I mean, it doesn't matter. But um, yeah, that one it, it derives from um, the Wizard of Oz is the metaphor there. It's uh, mm -hmm. combining Oz and the Prairie with you caught somewhere in between. So um, I like to, you know, have a little bit of wordplay with a lot of the words that I use here. But um, yeah, in that definition, it's it's one of those longer essays that uh, is sprinkled throughout the book. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it considers Dorothy on the morning after uh, her return from Oz, um, just looking around, um, you know, trying to trying to go back to her ordinary black and white world, having known that, you know, there's color out there that she's, you know, she was able to see, but no longer can. So I, the last line of that, I think is spare a thought for poor Dorothy, the orphan girl of Kansas who dreams in color, but lives in black and white. And I think in a way we're all in that, in that, uh, in that boat. Um, there's another one. I don't know if I'm saying it right again, but Alasia or Alasia, the fear that you're no longer able to change. Yeah, Alasia. Yeah, Alasia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that one I was thinking about. Um, you know, glass blowers standing at the furnace and how they have a limited amount of time. You know, where the the molten glass is still pliable, but it gets harder and harder as it cools, until eventually it'll it'll just shatter. And sometimes I feel. I feel that way myself, especially, I'm, you know, I'm 38 and I have a, a one and a half year old daughter and she's just, she's molten hot and changeable and every day is different. And I can already feel myself uh, hardening in a, in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Well, let me go to caller Jillian in Richmond. Hi, Jillian. Hi. Um, I'm so excited about this book. My um, <laughs> family is a wordy family and I'm going to buy this book and read it over Christmas with my mom. Um, Excellent. But I wanted to share with you a word that my children made up. They're teenagers now. By the way, 38, you're still plenty malleable. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, that's so, great to hear. Thank you. <laughs> so my kids are teenagers now, but when they were toddlers, they used to talk about their connectionship. Um, as Whoa. in their relationship to each other. And um, sometimes, as siblings do, they would go, you know, through hard times and sibling rivalry. And when they were feeling super lovey with each other, they would say, I really like our connectionship. Aww. And they didn't even know it wasn't a real word. And I think they still use it to this day. And they don't listen to this uh, podcast or this radio station. So I don't think that I'm, I'm outing them. They won't. They still won't know. <laughs> wow. That's, that's wonderful, actually. Um, that's, yeah. That's one thing about um, English. English that I noticed is that there's not enough words for different sort of categories of relationship. Like even the word relationship has to pull a quadruple duty to convey, you know, an intimate relationship between a couple, but it also means, you know, your relationship with your father or, or your kid. And um, I think connectionship is brilliant. Neil Dillian, thanks for sharing that. That's really sweet. My pleasure. Uh, let me go to Anne in Santa Rosa next. Hi, Anne. Hi. Yeah, thank you. Um, I am currently reading Louise Erdick's book, um, The Night Watchman, and uh, your conversation really resonated with me. She um, translates, she has several sentences in the book in which um, they're long English sentences, and she notes that in Chippewa or Cree, um, there's one word for a long sentence that describes that sentence. Um, yeah. And she also talks about um, kind of the 
the humor that is inherent in a word in Chippewa or Cree that doesn't translate into English. And I guess my obscure sorrow is the thought that maybe not with those two languages, but with so many other native languages, we've lost them. And so we've lost that, those words and that understanding. Absolutely. And thanks. It's interesting. She's touching on the things that I think you bring up, which is, I mean, I guess I should ask you if you feel that it's problematic that in many ways we do have so few words or that we are, there are so many emotions that feel untranslatable and the costs of such things. Yeah. And, and that really brings um, language death as, you know, all to, it's, yes. it's, it's really a tragedy um, that yes. we're losing so many different ways of looking at the world, just the, the elements of perspective, even of humor um, that, um, that the caller was just, just talking about. I, I think about that all the time and how much we're losing and, and, you know, whittling down to just a handful of languages around the world, which are practical to speak. But I mean, you know, there, there's so much that is being lost uh, every day when, when we lose some of those languages. Well, here are a few words that our listeners have volunteered that they've made up. Uh, our producer Blanca tweeted, I refer to my kids as tangry, sometimes for tired and angry. The tantrums <laughs> yep. are real. Pete tweets, I just learned a new word yesterday, one made up by Lewis Carroll, describes what watching the Beatles feels like, frabjous. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kevin writes, permanente, to make permanent. <laughs> And Sandia tweets, another colleague of mine, exhaustipation for when you are so, so tired, you just can't sleep. I know it's not an emotion per se, but it is a mood. It reminds me actually of your word, nictus, feeling quietly, it's like the opposite, feeling quietly overjoyed to be the only one awake in the middle of the night. Yeah. That's the story behind that one. Between those two words is pretty much the story of my life. Either I'm trying <laughs> to sleep and I can't, uh, but, or I'm, you know, awake in the middle of the night and I could not be happier. Um, you know, when you're sitting alone with a laptop and a cup of tea or, you know, strolling down abandoned streets, I used to, uh, where I grew up, you know, just walk down the streets at three in the morning. And it's like, everything was stripped down like an empty th- theater between productions, you know, stripped down to a simple black box box open to be whatever you want it to be. I think there was something really beautiful about that. Well, let me go to Sean in San Jose next. Hi, Sean. Hello. I wish there was a term for this, for the deep feeling one has to connect with all of the ethnicities and uh, racial ties um, of, of, of their, of the many cultures that they come from. Um, mm. we are, we are Afro natives from Mexico. Mm. Um, my mother married into a family of really tall, uh, uh, light skinned German people and <laughs> really small, uh, Scots people. They're all ginger. Yeah. So all of my families look very different, uh, very different cultures. Um, they arrived in America at different times, speaking different languages and, um, you know, to learn Mistec or Nahuatl, um, mm. native languages spoken in um, Central uh, America and Mexico, one mm. has to uh, one has to learn scholastic Spanish. So we have to cur- we have to curve our way through, mm. you know, different cultures and different languages in different uh, countries to get to other ones. Yeah. Such and a great the point. deep satisfaction that one that one receives while while 
while um, uh, sating that desire. Yeah, <laughs> that's thinks. it's beautiful. Yeah, I, it, you know, culture is so rich and it's so intertwined with history and you know religion and language and it, you know I just get the feeling that uh, you know you just you're just scraping the surface and and um, uh, yeah I think there's there's a deep history there that uh, you know I would love to tap into myself. Um, but uh, it's, you know, it's always, it's always so difficult. Yeah. And not everything is available to us. I, I wonder if yeah. you are ever concerned about the cultural specificity or limitations of your own experience when you're considering emotions to describe. Uh, definitely. I mean, I, one of the things that I just constantly confront is the reality of my own subjectivity. Yeah. Um, and it, especially there's the word that is, I think, caught on in the sense of what a real word is, the word that is the realist of mine is Sonder. And that <laughs> yes. is the, um, the awareness that uh, every random passerby all around you is, is the main character of their own story. Though to you, they're just an extra in the background. Um, and I think that's, you know, that really speaks to the solipsism that is just inherent in all of our perspectives that yes. we, you know, we can't help but, but just think of our subjectivity as, you know, a kind of ersatz objectivity. Um, but we have, to, we have to continually remind ourselves that everyone around us is the main character too. And everyone around us, you know, is tapping into an entire universe that we can't see. Um, that I find that, that haunting and sorrowful and joyful. And um, yeah, I think about it constantly. Well, a listener, Craig, actually references Sonder. Craig writes, Sonder, I needed that word. And then writes, mm. one other famous example, the Portuguese word saudade doesn't have yeah. a single word in English to describe each, to, to describe such a state, the profound bittersweet longing or memory for someone or something now out of reach, distant or lost. This is a word that you've also been really moved by, uh, yeah. John. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but just to hear that translated, it sounds so vague, but I mean, I've, <laughs> there are entire books about this concept, trying to unpack it and, and uh, get all the, the little cultural nuances and all the baggage and just, you know, laying everything out there um, that, uh, you know, for native speakers um, is just is right on the tip of their tongue. And I, I, I greatly envy that with a word like saudade. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit more about Sonder, just because, as you say, it's the realist word that you have or something mm -hmm. that does feel like it's become become something that is in the wider English lexicon. It's in the Urban Dictionary, and we found it at least. I think there was one instance of it in a film. There may be more, which let me mm -hmm. just play that cut right now. Sure. Sonder. That's a great word. I didn't have a moment of Sonder until last year. It's okay. You have other good qualities. Mm. <laughs> the way that they just throw it in oh. there, they're playing a Scrabble game, and this character nice. has played Sonder as a Scrabble word, and they're totally cool <laughs> with it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. More power to them. Um, uh, what, yeah. what has it been like to see a word you created become so popularized that it's in the movie straight up? <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's it's... Um, there, there's a quote from Steve Jobs that I really love is, is that, you know, the, the biggest realization for him is that the idea that, that the entire world around you feels so um, locked into place, but you have to realize that you can move the furniture around and the whole place was built by people no smarter than you. And so having, you know, run across a word that I just made up one day, um, not thinking too hard about it, um, but people, you know, cite as if it was, you know, a quote, unquote, real word. Um, it just, 
it put every other word into sort of a different light where, you know, everything is, is being um, defined according to the whims of someone or other, um, whether it's the word, you know, robot or, or nerd, which was, you know, a, a rhyme that Dr. Seuss tried to put together. Um, and, but that's, you know, that's feels like a part of our world, but really the world is still undefined. It's, it's up to, it's up to us to define, define it however we want. And you derive Sonder in part from the French um, mm -hmm. Sonder or Sonde? Sonde, yeah, to plumb the depths. It's, uh, it's, it's a word in many other languages, but that, that was the primary one that, that led me there. Well, we have listeners writing in with words in other languages that uh, they feel like has no real English translation. Um, and uh, let me read a few of those for you now. Mm. Diana on Instagram writes, mudita, a Buddhist term for feeling joy for other people's success. No similar term in English. Uh, this listener yeah. writes, zensuicht or sensuicht is a German word or that is that doesn't really have a good English single word translation. You should correct me. Yeah. It's S-E-H-N-S-U-C-H-T. May be mm. described as a sickness from a yearning desire often associated with something greater than the self that may be unattainable and perfect. Oh, that's beautiful. And Julie on Instagram writes, giggle in Tagalog. I'll try to describe the emotion. It's the feeling of intense joy and excitement when people who see cute things they love, like babies or dogs. Mm -hmm. What is this in English? And actually, another listener tried to reply. They often say adorbs. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but what is the feeling there? Um, yeah. And Jessica writes, my Korean American friends, and I wish there was a clear and easy translation for nunchi. Nunchi, I looked it up as and to try to see how Google translates it, and Google translates it as tact, but it is so much more than than tact. It's it's like this situational awareness that's also very intuitive and very respectful. I don't know. It's like so much to yeah. try to describe and find an English word equivalent for that. But totally. Yeah. But so, yeah, yeah. Um, each of those just feels mind expanding when you when you you learn it. You know, it's it makes you. I wish we worked harder with with our, our words. And instead of defaulting to a word like love, for example, if we could just sort of trust bust that one into a dozen different, uh, you know, shades of love, um, I think we would be, uh, we would be able to communicate it much more clearly. And with that communication, you've touched on this, but, but comes better connection and we're coming up on a break. So mm. that's one thought. We have more of them to share with you after the break. You're listening to John Koenig talking about the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. He created it as a way to give words to complex emotions. Stay with us for more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi, Forum. This is Kimberly from Los Gatos, California. And the word that I wish existed for an emotion that I had felt recently when I was home over Thanksgiving is like that anticipation you feel when you're about to see someone you haven't had seen in a really long time. That's Kimberly calling in from Los Gatos on our show about putting words to complex emotions uh, that we feel. John Koenig is creator of the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, a blog, a web series, and now a book that tries to do just that. And John Koenig, I don't know if you have any thoughts for Kimberly or if there's a word that comes close to to what Kimberly is describing there. Um, yeah, there, there's um, a, a state of uh, anticipation where you, you don't even necessarily want to, you, you know, uh, you kind of almost dread the thing that uh, meeting back up with someone. Um, I, I can't remember what it is on the top of my head. Um, maybe it's antitious or something like that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 yeah, it's, it's a fascinating feeling. Let me go to Jordan in San Francisco. Hi, Jordan. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, so I wanted to start off by thanking John for his intentional effort to enrich our language um, and just share this thought that I've been, yeah, and just share this thought that I've been pondering, you know, as individuals, we live uh, in our own heads with our own ideas. And the fact that we have language to communicate these ideas is, strikes me as this crazy group hallucination where mm. we've just decided that this so assortment of words will carry a meaning to it and that the recipient will hopefully understand the meaning on their end as well. Um, and I wanted to hear your thoughts on that and uh, regarding the, the tools that you've created, you know, these words that you've made uh, for sharing this group hallucination. Jordan, yeah. thanks. Excellent. Um, yeah, I, I totally share your, um, your thought there. Um, I, to me, I picture um, language is a little bit like uh, how hornets uh, or, or or magpies, you know, gather little bits of things out in the world and then construct this this sort of paper nest version of things. And you know that nest has to stand for everything in the world. Um, uh, and so we all we all basically inhabit uh, the languages that we speak, and we we try to use these little bits of the world world to refer to different abstractions and, and real things, and and we try to pretend that it's the real world, but of course it's not. It's not nearly as rich, um, and so it it is a, a shared hallucination in a, in a certain way. Um, and I think the more we're aware of that, uh, and the more we can you know, look at our language, um, with, uh, you know, a loose grip, um, the more we will, uh, take pains to, to participate in the language that we speak and, uh, and make sure that we're being understood. Jordan, thanks for the question. And Nick also writes an appreciation. Nick writes, I've been using Koenig's project in my interpersonal communication classes for years to help explain how emotional vocabulary increases emotional intelligence. It's an amazing project. Some of the emotions you describe, John, are so instantly relatable, but then there are others that that I didn't really recognize as having mm -hmm. felt before, but then once you actually named them, hmm. it almost felt like I could feel them. So for example, 
The word povism is the frustration of being stuck inside your head, unable to see your own face or read your body language in context, only ever guessing how you might be coming across, which makes you think of yourself as a detached observer squinting out of a lushly painted landscape, though to everyone else you seem woven right into the canvas. Um, what do you think about it, it, the possibility um, that a word can create an emotion? <laughs> that yeah. maybe you haven't experienced before. Well, that, I think that that taps into um, just how vast and unknowable um, the, un the unconscious is and that you can, you're not even aware that you've clued into something or, or felt something. Um, but when you put a, a, a word to an emotion in particular, um, it can sort of crystallize, uh, you know, the static in your head and, and help you connect the dots in a certain way. And, uh, and suddenly it's familiar and it rises to the surface. I, I think that's a, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And it, it, it just begs the question, like what other patterns could we tease out of the static? Let me go to right Michael. Word? Yeah. Let me go to Michael in Oakland. Hi, Michael. Hi, um, thank you for uh, the show and what you're talking about. Um, your uh, your guest is reminding me of um, uh, Paul. Uh, Paul, he, uh, he's a professor at SF State, or was. Um, he does a whole bunch of work around um, it, emotional intelligence, and mm. and uh, he he uh, did his PhD research on going to Papua New Guinea and showing them pictures of facial expressions as a way to test whether we humans are actually hardwired to read emotions the same way. So he's testing the Eurocentric expression language uh, by showing pictures to the Papua New Guineans. And he was able to deduce that uh, we are indeed hardwired to read the same expressions and interpret them the same way. And uh, he gave an expression of giving six words to the word pride, which pride is so mm. underrated and understood, not, uh, not well clarified because there right. are so many different kinds of pride. But I just wanted to add that to the discussion. Michael, thanks. Appreciate that. The, the author's name is uh, Paul Ekman. Ekman. Okay, and, great. Thanks, Michael. Let me go to Adam in Sunnyvale. Hi, Adam. Hi, how are you? Well, <laughs> um, I, so I have an interesting story. It's, it's not specifically about emotion, but it is about uh, translation from languages, and in this case, in the other direction. I worked mm. for a few years in a field called internationalization and localization in high tech, and the product that I worked on had to be translated into 14 different languages. The written component was actually the really critical part, and that's where the story gets interesting. Mm. So the, uh, the, uh, one day when I was working, all the 14 uh, countries had sent their translators over, and we were working in the lab, and there was a specific technical term called a raw logical volume, raw being the operative part. And one of the translators looked, and they said, hey, when you say raw logical volume, do you mean uh, a uh, format, a, a thing that's unformatted, or do you mean something that's been formatted in a special way? And I said, oh, it means it's been formatted in a special way that becomes really important because then a few other translators said, wait a minute, that's what it means. <laughs> and so the, yeah. And, and then this is where it got interesting. So a few of them said, wait, do you mean like a blank floppy disk? Is that what raw means? Cause in our language, we use the term raw to mean a blank disk. And I said, no, no, this is specifically formatted a certain way. And oh. then a few other translators said, Oh, wait a minute. Now, 
the, the final piece of this was they all had to go back and retranslate, which is fascinating. But the Japanese translator did a specific choice. He chose to switch to the Kana character set and to simply spell out the term raw and mm. expect the user to know what that meant rather than trying to translate it into a Japanese term for which there wasn't one. Wow. Fascinating, That's, Adam. That is fascinating. And it, it begs the question, how many times has that happened, but we don't catch it, even within <laughs> our own languages? Yes. Um, that we just carry on. and But actually, there's just a thicket of meaning that we have to unpack here to, to be understood. What is the word, John Koenig, that you think the most, the most human brains agree on and understand completely, but is also so incredibly obscure or not obscure, just like incredibly hard to put your finger on in terms of what exactly it means or its origins? Um, the one that, that um, uh, immediately occurs to me is, is the word okay, which uh, linguists <laughs> estimate is the... Um, you know, the most commonly understood word, word in the world, um, which would make it the realist, um, you know, by any reasonable standard. But on, at the same time, nobody really knows what OK stands for. <laughs> so that to me, that's that's just it's a perfect encapsulation of of the problem of thinking of words as real or not real is that the realest word we have um, is, in fact, um, a mystery. Um, but it doesn't matter, ultimately. And, the, you know, and that says something about how we use language. Well, here are a few more words that our listeners wish existed. The listener writes, the spark of happiness when you remember something as soon as you said you forgot it. Mm. <laughs> Another listener writes, Catherine, my language sorrow is having to hide my feeling of the contentment to die. Not suicidal, not ill. Mm. 59 years old and complete. I love my job, my family, my community service but I'm okay with not being here. Yeah. And then questions about words. Bonnie writes, is there a good word for the specific buzzing feeling I get when I see or hear about injustices? Hmm. Yeah, that, that's, that's, these are all fantastic, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and Archie yeah. wants to know, is there a name for being out somewhere or traveling and being overcome with a very strong urge to go home? I have felt this. And then Daniel writes, Taphophile is someone who enjoys or is fascinated with dead things, but is there a word for what it feels like when you're in a cemetery? I don't mean the dread, fear, or sense of the macabre, but the feeling or recognition that you're in the presence of the dead. This happens to me whenever I'm in a cemetery. Not sure if any of those bring something to mind or if they're yeah. just inspiring to hear. Yeah, I have a, I have a word called orpine, which is uh, similar to that. It's uh, sort of you know, wandering through a cemetery in a very sort of peaceful, um, almost as if you're people watching the dead, you know, imagining everything they must have seen and the lives they might have led, um, you know, all of which just has to be condensed down to uh, a simple dash uh, to cover the unimaginable vastness of their experience. This person is now offering a word that they made up Awagiri, I think is how they say it. Uh, the hmm. awkward silence that arises between two people when they have nothing really going on or in common. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, that's a good one. I think awkwardness could just spur its own language, really, <laughs> just trying to pin down all the different ways that we, uh, you know, have, have trouble um, yeah, can, uh, talking to each other, really. Uh, let me go to... Caller Elon next in Oakland. Hi, Elon. Hi. Uh, can you hear me? I can. Yep. 
Great. Um, yeah, I really, I'm excited for this book. I didn't realize how exciting this topic is to me, but <laughs> I think about it a lot. Especially, I'm glad you mentioned the word duende because Robert Bly, the poet, just passed away a week or two oh, ago. Wow. And right, so he 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 was really interested in translating words, for, especially from the Spanish realists. And you know, it made me realize that one way to contribute so much in this world isn't necessarily to create your own poetry, although he did, but yeah. just to like bring other things to to light for people. I so tell thank you, you for that. Robert, and then the I, other thing I want. Sorry, Robert, Robert Bly is actually my um, my grandfather's brother. Um, what? He's he's oh, in my family. No I, it's an unbelievable that you you mentioned that he's one of the the people that I thanked in the back of the book um, as inspiring okay. me to start writing um, because yeah. you know him as a translator and and just as a human being um, has been enormously formative uh, for me. Um, and so I I'm, I'm glad that uh, you brought him up. It's been a big Thank loss. The other thing I wanted to bring, mention is, um, you know, you're, you're talking about the, the sadness of losing languages. Uh, and this book, it made me, what the discussion is making me think about um, this book by uh, um, James Galeich, The Information, where he talks about how language formed the same way code forms by taking small words and stringing them together to create new words. So like in mm-hmm. this one African language, you have sky and sun, and then they combine that to create the word father, which didn't yet exist. Wow. So it gives me some hope that our language doesn't have to stop here, but actually could become more rich if people start to think the way you're encouraging, where we just make up words with you know relative relevant meaning rather than just think, oh, it stops here. The dictionary is you know firm. The end. So yeah, that's that's it. Thank you. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank you. I, yeah, ahead. I think of a, a palette of colors um, that uh, you can recombine in different ways, and and we're we're working with our primary colors now, but we have a long way to go. We're talking with John Caney, creator of the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Jessica writes, in our family, we made up a word to describe my husband's sense of humor. We often find ourselves laughing, even though he's being really annoying. So we say that he is irritating, (laughs) a combination (laughs) of entertaining and irritating. John Caney, you say that you are commonly asked, is this word real or is it made up? How do you answer that with regard to to words that that you've created or that are in the dictionary? Um, it's it's been a journey. I, initially, I said, "Well, of course they're not real." You know, I just I made them up. Um, but the more I started uh, thinking about it, the more I realized, you know, it's it's not like um, a college that de- de- you know confers a degree uh, as to whether uh, you know if something appears in a dictionary, therefore it becomes real. Um, the language. Uh, you know, the language is far more important than what the dictionary has to say about it. Um, it's a living, breathing, breathing thing. And so my attitude is if, if you love a word and it means something to you, um, then it's real. Um, ultimately, I think there's a, there's a huge misunderstanding among uh, people about languages in general. And I think it's dictionaries are the reason for this. Um, and Potentially, they shouldn't have been invented in the first place because they give us a sense that words have meaning, um, but we don't. Um, but the truth is, we're the ones who pour ourselves into our words, and that's the way it should be. Um, so it's it's really it's up to you as to whether a word is real or not. Let me go to Kim in Danville. Hi, Kim. Hi. So I Hi. I created a word for online dating during COVID: <laughs> hibernating. Hibernating. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, Kim. Love that. You're welcome. Bye. This, is, this listener tweets, we need words to use. We must blow off steam and vent. The F word is overused. 
And using a word that's about sex to vent and swear is so crazy and wrong. <laughs> Help, we need <laughs> venting words. A couple more from listeners about words in other languages that uh, don't have a great English translation. In Mexico, people say ahorita, which we would literally translate to little hour. The meaning is hard to translate. It's like something that could happen in the next few minutes or hours or days. You say ahorita to convey urgency, even though you may not do it right away. So chill out. <laughs> Ray tweets, the Welsh word, oh, I, I hope I'm going to say this right, Hirith or Hirith means a deep longing for homeland, one that yeah. may not even exist anymore as you once knew it. When I hear people express how much they miss an older, ungentrified pre-tech boom SF, I think they sound Hirith or Hirith, and I wish they yeah. knew the word for it. That's a beautiful, beautiful word. I love it. Do you think that you will ever stop making words? Like, is it ever a burden <laughs> to... to... Uh. Not Do at it. all. It's it's a lifestyle. I, I find it, it tremendously enriching just for my own sense of you know therapy. <laughs> because if if you're able to un untangle uh, one emotion from another, suddenly it, it doesn't seem so scary. Like in this book, I, you know, there are seven different um, definitions that sort of cover my own fear of death. And uh, and once you actually peel one apart from the other, suddenly it's not so scary. And I, I think. That's, that's not something that I'm going to let go of easily um, I, because it's, you know, it's literally, it's the search for meaning. And I think words are a, a fantastic way to do that. Did it take you a while to figure that out? Because I watched a few of your earlier TED Talks where you were saying that you weren't quite sure why it was so fulfilling to you to do this. And I've, it, I'm really not sure why either, but um, <laughs> part, part of it is, is conversations like this is, is being able to, um, you know, each of these is just a little bit of a hook or a flag that uh, other people can see. And then they, they, they come forward and then we can talk about things like this that um, maybe wouldn't have come up, come up otherwise. And I think there's, the, the, there's something beautiful about conversations like this. Oh, you're touching on also why I, I love my own job. John Canning, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you today. Likewise. It's been, a, it's been an absolute pleasure. There are John... no words for how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> John Canning is the creator of the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. And my thanks to listeners for joining the conversation and sharing so much with us. And my thanks to our producers. Forum is produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Lauerberg, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, and Grace One. Caroline Smith is our engagement producer. Susan Britton is the lead producer of the 10 O'Clock Hour, who produced today's segment. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brendan Willard. Our interns are Kimia Akbari and Jennifer Ng. Our executive editor is Ethan Tobin. Lindsay and Chief Content Officer is Holly Kernan. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend, Forum listeners. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.